0: Welcome to the Wildly Tarot Podcast. You may have noticed, based on the title of this podcast episode, that we are doing a re-release of an episode that we first put out in February of 2019 uh, about Pamela Coleman Smith, The Untold Story, which is a wonderful book that we really loved reviewing back then and we're excited to have re-released now. Uh, Everything is fine. We just had some hiccups with scheduling and then some unexpected construction on Esther's place, which if you remember our reading from last week, we're hopeful something comes of this. Anyway, Mercury is retrograde. All of the chaos exists. We're so excited to re-release this episode and we're so excited to go back to our regularly scheduled program uh, next week. Hopefully things will have settled down by then. Anyway, enjoy the re-release and we love you. Hi, Holly. How are you?
1: I am good. I know that today we are reviewing Pamela Coleman Smith, The Untold Story.
0: Yes, we are. But
1: for our listeners, I want to tell them about a different book.
0: Oh, fun.
1: So I read this past weekend The Duchess War by Courtney Milan. Ah, love her. And it was every awkward millennial's perfect romance because both the hero and the heroine were just perfectly awkward and adorable <laughs> and i felt seen in both of them and i just cannot like rave about this much more so
0: oh my god yes. i read this book in 2015 i'm checking my goodreads right now i did read it i gave it four stars
1: <laughs> four stars i would give it like five stars it's like my one of my <laughs> favorites now i feel like rereading it this week just to make myself happy again like oh my gosh in the, in the second chapter i legit bust out laughing at a little scene that happened I was just <laughs> overjoyed with this and it's like even though it's like a romance novel I l- love them and enjoy them for what they are and this was just a piece of joy in my life that I wanted to share with everybody else
0: okay I wrote I gave it four stars but wrote I have zero shame in my love of Regency romance novels but with a heroine and a do workers' rights activists, Charles Darwin enthusiasts, and have legitimately complex relationships, I can confidently say that this novel is a favorite in the genre.
1: Yeah. And there were so <laughs> many, like, twists and turns, and, like, all, like, I expected one thing to happen when his mom showed up, like, every mom of the, like, the hero, when she shows up, you know that stuff's gonna go down, and that she's gonna be like, why are you dating my son? You're not good enough for him. And it was completely like plot twisted i was like oh my gosh that's
0: so well i'm changing the rating to five stars because apparently i loved it but just in 2015 didn't feel comfortable with (laughs) giving romance novels five stars
1: this is called growth listeners Yeah,
0: 31 year old holly is fine with it apparently how old was i then 28 year old holly was like no i don't know (laughs) i read it like four years ago this week oh (laughs) nice Time for a (laughs) reread. Nice, nice, nice. Thank you for bringing it back into my life, Esther. You're welcome. It's called The Duchess
1: War by Courtney Milan, and it's, like, on Kindle and in your bookstore, so Yeah, and and also,
0: I think that Courtney Milan is a really great author if you're not into romance novels, but we've been talking about it so much on our non-romance podcast because she, especially in The Duchess War, if I'm remembering correctly, has really, like, Dynamic characters who feel way more modern than, like, yes. you know, 1830s yeah, yeah. or Like, whatever. there's consent
1: boners <laughs> everywhere. It's nice.
0: <laughs> that is a reference to Heaving Bosoms, <laughs> the podcast that we often referenced
1: it's I mean it's like the only other podcast we both listen to like I mean like (laughs) on a constant
0: basis (laughs) we both listen to so many podcasts it's kind of embarrassing it is but only in that we should be spending our time like interacting with other people that we actually (laughs) know but instead Instead of talking with people
1: on the podcast just like probably (laughs) our listeners do to us (laughs) so here we'll give you like a two second pause for you all to respond to what we've said And we're done. And we're done. Now onto the podcast. (laughs) You you made some really good points, listeners. Thank you. We appreciate this. for card of the day yes we are since we're talking about our pamela Coleman Smith, i i'm gonna just call her i call her pixie throughout this whole thing yeah so I,
0: i'm, I'm just calling her pam in my notes which <laughs> is like so not glamorous it's
1: like the office pam that's yeah, what i think of when i hear exactly. pam so i'm using her centennial deck for card of the day which is i think my favorite rws rendition is the centennial yeah. borderless
0: Oh, you have the big one. I only have the mini Centennial.
1: Maybe they renamed it because I just bought this one a couple like after
0: you did. So maybe oh, yeah, they renamed maybe because I like pre-ordered this guy because I don't like oh, borders. Okay. <laughs> I know borders suck. Like I know ugh. some people think that it's so nitpicky to be like this deck would be great except for the giant borders. But I just think that aesthetically like why would you like cover it. the
1: art? Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. Ooh, I got the
1: King of Pentacles today. Oh, my God. And Yay. I have a fun anecdote about the King of Pentacles Oh, yes, later. tell us, tell us. Oh, nope, for later. For Ooh, la- okay, okay. Well,
0: actually, sure. I'll say it now. Why not? Okay. So this is something <laughs> that comes up at the end of the book when they're talking about the symbolism that she uses and kind of the artistic process. But in the end of the book, in that section, they have side-by-sides between some of her friends that they think people were modeled after oh. and the cards that they're supposed to be. And the King of Pentacles, along with the Magician and a couple of other, like, cards that are in Rider-Waite-Smith decks represented as men, are actually female friends of hers. So it's kind of like oh, a, a
1: possibly like subversive... A, like a little, like a little, fuck you to patriarchy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's really interesting. I mean, of course you can't tell because they're covered by, like, layers of robes and stuff.
0: Yeah, but the power of wow. suggestion of having the picture of this friend that whose name I can't remember off the top of my head... Right next to the King of Pentacles, like mm-hmm. this, this is modeled after her. I was like, "Damn, it really is." Wow. But that could be for sure the power of suggestion.
1: But you never know. Yeah. Anyway, we'll just, pre- we'll just pretend it's her best friend from this time period. Yeah. So, what does the King of Pentacles kind of mean? Oh, I feel yeah. like he's. I was so ready to secure. jump
0: into the book already. Oh, oh. No, we can. <laughs> slow, slow down. Know, In Korean, it's so Chun
1: Chanee, Chun, 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 chun Slow <laughs> chun chun <laughs> down. <laughs>
0: You're too excited, oh, Holly. Deep I know. I need to like settle. To have the only thing that I've had this morning is like a, like half a bottle of water and like a, two cups of coffee. It's time to breathe. Okay, so <laughs> yes, please breathe. <laughs> <sighs> King of Pentacles. I love the King of Pentacles mm-hmm. because I feel like especially when we're so we were joking before we started recording about how we chose such a complex book for such a like stressful week. Like I was kind of gone all weekend at this incredibly fun wedding, but I definitely didn't have enough time to prepare as much as I'd like. But I spent a lot of time yesterday prepping and getting through it and feeling really more progressively more and more prepared. And I feel Mm -hmm. like the King of Pentacles represents that. Like it's like, yes, you may feel like you rushed through this, but you're actually pretty prepared or at least act like you are. So maybe I shouldn't have told that anecdote. No, it's fine.
1: (laughs) Make it till you make it. Yeah, exactly. The king of pentacles is like the epitome of security and he knows what to do. And he, like you said, he's prepared for kind of anything that gets thrown at him. So I think it's really good energy to go through this book today that we're ready for anything that this book feels. Yeah,
0: exactly. So this book is called Pamela Coleman Smith, The Untold Story. It's by Stuart Kaplan, Mary Kay Greer, Elizabeth Foley O'Connor, and Melinda Boyd Parsons. Those names, or many of those names, probably sound super familiar, and it's because a lot of them are kind of titans in the tarot world. Obviously, we're going to talk about Pamela Coleman Smith a lot because she's the subject of this book, but... Stuart Kaplan is the founder and chairman of U.S. Games, which is one of the biggest tarot publishers. If you are unfamiliar but have multiple decks, there's a really, really, really good chance that one of them is from U.S. Games. He's also written, like, dozens of iconic books including all of the volumes of the Encyclopedia of Tarot, um, as well as kind of creating and publishing the Universal Tarot deck. The Universal Tarot deck is one of the ones that gets suggested to people a lot. It has the, like, little boy with a bird Mm -hmm. on the cover. But he's been collecting information about Pamela Coleman Smith for 40 years. Oh, my gosh. So this is, like, definitely a passion project for him. Mary Kay Greer is also kind of an iconic person. She's also written a lot of books about tarot, and kind of she's known as being one of the pillars of the like self-development tarot, like using archetypes, to further your self-development. That's kind of what she's known for. Elizabeth Foley O'Connor and Melinda Boyd Parsons are both researchers and authors who have previous experience with Pamela Coleman-Smith as well. And the deck is sort of split into four sections, one written by each of those authors. So Pamela's Life, which is the first section and the longest section that isn't just images, is Elizabeth Foley O'Connor did Pamela's Life the Folk Tales, Art, and Poetry section was by Stuart Kaplan. And that's, like, incredibly image-heavy. It's, like, 300 yes. pages of reproductions of her work. And it is stunning. And mm-hmm. we will go through some of yes. those things. Then the Influences and Expression and the writer weight deck is from Melinda Boyd Parsons. And Pamela's Legacy is by Mary Kay Greer. And the publisher says... Pamela Coleman-Smith, The Untold Story, brings together the work of four distinguished scholars who have devoted years of research to uncover the life and creative accomplishments of Pamela Coleman-Smith. Known to millions as the creator of the writer weight tarot deck, Pamela Coleman-Smith, 1878 to 1951, was also a stage and costume designer, folklorist, poet, author, illustrator of ballads and folktales, suffragette, and publisher of books and broadsheets. This collaborative work uh, presents a richly illustrated biography of Pamela's life with essays on the events and people that influenced her, including Jack Yates, Ellen Terry, Alfred Steglitz? Stieglitz, Bram Stoker, and William Gillette. There's also a chronological survey of her folktales, art, and poetry, and an exploration of her lasting legacy. Over 400 color pages of Pamela's non-tarot art have been curated from her publications, including The Broadsheet, The Green Sheaf, Blue Beard, Anansi Stories, Russian ballet, costumes, stage designs, Irish magazines, book illustrations, posters, and much more. And it this is a monster, yes. monster book. It's because huge. when you hear, like, 400 pages, that can mean basically anything. Like, it can If it's a small book, 400 pages is just, like, a regular novel. Yeah. But this is, like, bigger than my, like, bio textbook from high school. Like, it is gigantic. (laughs) And there are, like,
1: illustrations everywhere. Like, you'll see on a page, and there's, like, little miniature people that have been taken from other places. Like, it's so cool how they've intertwined her artwork into this book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so one caveat before we really get started with going through the book is that this is not – a definitive Pamela Coleman Smith historical podcast episode. This is a review and recap specifically of this book. So if there's something that you're expecting to hear and don't or something that you hear that you weren't expecting to hear, it's probably something you could just chalk up to this being a review of this specific book. This is the longest and seemingly most in-depth biography. There were definitely parts that I just had to start skimming because there were so herbs, many herbs, details. Herbs. <laughs> yeah, I just, another heaving <laughs> Bush's reference. Uh, I just herbsed my way through some parts because it was so incredibly so many. detailed. Yes. And she was so prolific in her youth that it's just like a long list to italicized publications <laughs> uh-huh i was just like
1: oh my gosh like i told holly
0: when we were discussing how to
1: split this up i was like i my eyes just kind of glazed over because yeah. too much information i automatically like shut my brain just like shuts down so i was
0: like please do this for me i will yeah. buy you a tarot deck <laughs> We assigned duties. Everything is going to be clear and fine. But yeah, so we're going through this book. Specifically, um, we did a couple of Google searches for, like, additional interviews with the people who wrote it and stuff like that. But we didn't do a ton of delving into, like fact checking yeah or external and research and also yeah. the book has a ton, ton of cited sources yes
1: yes it's very well annotated so in the back so
0: well annotated it feel it really does feel like a textbook like it, it feels is, like a like an art textbook yeah to exactly mm-hmm. totally and I feel like when I first picked it up I guess we'll just start with first impressions even though yeah. that's not on my outline but I but that's hey, we'll bad. do that anyway my <laughs> first impression was like I only noticed the art. I kind mm. of totally skimmed over the biographical stuff. Yeah, I was like, "Where
1: is her story?" Yeah, I only exactly. see artwork. Yeah,
0: yeah, and the artwork is so cool. It's like such a huge component of it. It is like if you don't feel like reading all the autobiographical stuff, but you just are interested in even like historical careers of artists, mm-hmm. you'll get something out. And of she
1: this. like touched everybody, like all the whole art world in that era. Like, she knew everybody. So you can see all these little influences in all of her artwork and stuff. So it's really cool, like, historical narrative of the art of that time, I think.
0: Totally, totally. And the paper is, like, really beautiful, high-quality paper. So it feels really cool to hold it and look through it and stuff and it's
1: a good weight like you can just exercise with it if you're
0: bored yeah that's true too <laughs> which i got i mean all of that is great considering the list price is like 45 dollars. yeah I, I spent I 50 on bucks on it's like it. like yeah. 25 now oh, oh my is... god
1: you paid full price full price yep welcome wow, to korea yeah that's, some... <laughs> <laughs> that's some dedication for you all
0: that is some dedication seriously <laughs> like that's like three tarot decks there people
1: but i am here for you I sacrifice for you. Exactly. I love it, though. (laughs) So I get her early life as a student and stuff like that, so I will just jump right in. Yeah, let's hear it. Corinne Pamela Coleman-Smith was not only an artist, as we know, but also a poet, folklorist, editor, publisher, costume, and stage designer. As one reviewer wrote, the untold story reveals a complex, talented woman whose efforts to overcome patriarchal structures in the 20th century are strikingly relevant in the 21st. So definitely... She transcends just her time period. Her father, Charles Edward Smith, and mother, Corin Coleman Smith, married in New York in 1870 when he was 24 years old and she was 34 years old. It's reported it, that the girl. mother was gorgeous. And I'm like, yeah. and he must have been rich.
0: Like, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> who wants
1: to marry a 24-year-old when you're 34? I mean.
0: <laughs> well, I in later parts, it talks about how she was one of the most, like, Renowned amateur actors in New York at the time, like she had a beautiful singing voice, and Mm -hmm. she was super glamorous, and (laughs) and she got a twenty-four-year-old good girl. Okay, yeah, way to go, girl. Both. Also, you are a couple years older than your husband. I'm five. I mean, it's not. (laughs) I'm gonna give my get it girl to both of you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Both of them
1: came from prominent families in New York. Her maternal grandfather is credited with publishing the first illustrated copy of American Verse and other family members were well-known authors and artists. Like her, like her mother's side of the family was like, everybody was into art and music and dance. On her paternal side, in contrast, was a family who was distinguished in business and government. One of them was a Puritan clergyman who founded the Connecticut colony. It uh, It is unknown when Charles and Corwin moved to London, but on February 16th of 1878, Pamela Coleman Smith was born. Pam, Pamela or Pixie lived with her parents in London until the age of 10 when they moved to Jamaica after her father took a job as an auditor for the West India Improvement Railroad Company. It was in Jamaica that Pixie became interested in art and enrolled in art classes. The posters she created for one competition were stated to be pretty and fanciful and most originally worked out. I feel like most originally worked out is not really a compliment. Yeah. They're like, well, you tried. You tried. Super hard. It's like that star, like, you tried. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, when I was like, huh, that's really fancy way of saying you tried a okay. picture. <laughs> or, or, like, oh, isn't that
0: interesting yeah, the yes, way exactly. you like, figured that out? And I out. think it was
1: like, I think it, the artwork was like Toad and Fairies or something. So it was something like, oh, cute. I know. I think I'm pretty sure it was Toad and Fairies, but yeah, it was just like. How
0: whimsical. She was
1: always so whimsical at that age, too. Anyway. Yeah. It was during this time in Jamaica that her mother died, and she took on duties as the head of household, entertaining dignitaries and the upper echelon of both New York and Jamaican society. However, Pixie, in letters to cousins, would write that she desired to create art instead of being tied down to daily tasks. So she was already a free spirit, ready to fly away.
0: Yeah. And Pixie
1: frequently also wrote to her cousins about miniature theater. Which, miniature theater, we will post a video in our Facebook group. Yeah, you
0: have to, because I was thinking the same thing as you. Like, (laughs) what on earth does that mean? It's 18 inches tall. How can people see
1: that? It's like, it's a little bit more elaborate than what we're thinking, but at the same time, it's still kind of stupid. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, they didn't, they didn't have didn't. TV. <laughs> that's what I just keep going back to. Like, they didn't have TV yesterday. It's OK. They didn't. They had books, but they didn't have TV. It's OK. This is like pre-TV.
0: Yeah. I just keep thinking of it like the, I mean, this is even bigger than that, but I keep thinking of the Lonely Goat Herd play from The South. Oh, yeah. That's, so,
1: that's that's much bigger than but that.
0: That's much bigger. The same those as are like mechanics, actual... but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so who
1: knows so the stage was 18 inches squared or a little less than 46 centimeters for our metric friends
0: (laughs) that is so (laughs) so generous of you to do that math i tried okay (laughs) on
1: this small stage with hand-painted backdrops and hand-sewn costumes for the figurines and these figurines were moved kind of like puppets with like they weren't like, I've because I envisioned like these figurines with like your hands goes inside, but hers was a little bit more elaborate where like strings and pulley system oh, kind cool. of was going on. So it's not as lame as I first thought, but it's <laughs> still a little... On the lame side. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Rest in movies. Okay.
0: How about this? We respect its intricacies, but it does not seem like an art form that we would be interested in attending. Exactly. (laughs) I'm
1: still wondering how she made money from this. Okay. Continuing on. (laughs) And a drama would be performed for the audience. So Pixie actually became very popular for her miniature theater productions. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of all things. (laughs) Sorry. Okay with elaborate presentations and original scripts. One miniature play at the time was Henry Morgan, which is actually based like on a real the the life of a real like captain that, oh. that in Jamaica, which I thought was interesting.
0: Is that like also the rum like that same Captain Morgan?
1: No, like it changed the name completely. Oh,
0: okay, okay, okay. Yeah,
1: it was. It's like a complete name change, but like it was based on a- some real man. <laughs> so Henry Morgan actually became so popular that she eventually performed it in New York, where she earned ninety-five dollars over a three-day, like over three performances.
0: Wow! And
1: in today's money, that is almost two thousand nine hundred dollars. So for three performances for on a miniature theater, she may almost made three grand.
0: Yeah, I think I might have to start doing miniature theater what are
1: we doing with our lives holly <laughs> we've invested in the wrong job
0: i know no kidding we need
1: to reconsider our hatred of miniature theater okay <laughs> and henry morgan had 15 scenes and 13 acts which were stated to be a most original and charming entertainment which uh, adorable. i mean come on yeah <laughs> in 1897 Pixie was at one time enrolled in Brooklyn Art School, but she did not receive a degree from there. But she also studied at Pratt Institute for two years where she was influenced by one of her professors, Arthur Wesley Dow. And Dow may be a familiar to those who love Georgia O'Keeffe because he influenced her greatly when she attended the school there as well. And he taught his students not only just to copy what was out in nature, but also to use colors and lines and shapes and tones to compose the paintings. And this is where Pixie excelled in her art, became more of her own unique style. And that's your turn.
0: Awesome. So then the book transitions to her emergence as a professional artist. So after leaving Pratt Institute, she goes back to Jamaica uh, with her dad. She w- was working on a school play or on a play for a schoolmaster. There were talks for a publication, but then it all kind of went away when her dad died. And so she moved back to New York to work on some Shakespearean like theatrical things. And she started really hustling to use her social capital to help market herself to publishers. Her interests seem to be really focused on Shakespeare and folklore at the time. And so that is really represented in her work. So she, in in this period, it also becomes really evident that she's super interested in like portraying really strong women. So if you look at the art, it's a lot of like really lady focused dancing or whatever. Like there's one (laughs) image that they point to where it's like a bunch of women dancing and then there's a priest who's being like restrained by additional <laughs> women, like kind of fighting the patriarchy in some ways. Oh, one of her friends, which is so crazy to me, was the original Peter Pan, Maude Adams. This oh, actress yes, who played yes. The yes. original Peter Pan. They were like fat, like buddies in New York. <laughs> she also be, like became friends with Yates, who had a real interest, in, or I guess who showed her that mythology and folklore could be something that lived in the modern world. It didn't have to be something that was written in Old English and like not relevant to life and stuff like that. So it kind of became like a living mythology and then that influenced by her love of Jamaican lore led her to writing down all writing several Anansi stories and Anansi for those of you who aren't familiar with it. I know that we read some of some Anansi stories in like elementary school. He's like a spider trickster god that's based in Africa and was brought through the slave trade to Jamaica and other West Indies, I'm using air quotes there, countries, first in like December of 1896. So keep in mind that she's like 18 then, Mm -hmm. right? Am I doing math right? Yes, I am. Because she was born in 78.
1: So she's like
0: 18. She has two of these stories appear in the Journal of American Folklore. And those are really notable because it's the first time that like pigeon, like Jamaican pigeon English, which is pigeon is like a combination of indigenous languages and the colonizer language, basically. People usually associate it with like Hawaii or the Philippines, or maybe that's Mm -hmm. because I live in the West Coast, but it's one of the first times that Jamaican Pigeon was published in an American publication, so that's pretty notable. The fun thing about her version of it is that he's not like all-knowing or all-seeing. He's this trickster god that often gets sort of bested by the animals that he's interacting with. And then in addition to that... In a lot of those stories, there are, like, medicine men sort of figures, like, sort of mystical figures that are usually men. And in her story, she replaces them with women frequently. Oh. Okay, so they are focused on, like, like traditional West Indian tales, but she also weaves Aesop's fables, uh, Hans Christian Andersen, the Brothers Grimm, all of these other folklore just replacing characters with the Anansi canon basically to oh. increase the number of stories and also make them a little bit more approachable to like American and British readers because some of the stories sound really familiar during the same time when she was like basically in her early twenties, she illustrated and wrote two English ballads, uh, the golden vanity and the green bed. And then also one called Whittacombe fair, Um, They were super limited editions. Like she printed out 500 copies of each. They're on cloth paper. They're beautiful. They're so stunning. But also she couldn't sell them because they ended up being so expensive because of the materials she chose. Yeah. And so I feel like that's kind of like, and they, they allude to this, but it kind of goes throughout the whole thing where this is sort of like the beginning of her expectations versus what people will actually pay her to do. Right. Right. But anyway, she continues to do... Souvenir booklets for plays and costuming for plays. Her cousin would play the original Sherlock Holmes on stage. I thought that was
1: amazing. And the artwork for that is so funny. Yeah,
0: it's so great. I love it. So she has, that means that she both, that like she was friends with both Sherlock Holmes and Peter Pan in her youth. Like that is adorable and whimsical. But anyway, she moves back to England. Uh, this is like one of my favorite things about her. She had a weekly salon, which was pretty normal for that era where people would come and they'd, you know, sing and read stories. And every surface was covered with books and art supplies and China. They would play the piano, recite poems. She'd do a stories. Then they would drink something called opal hush, which was claret, which is a fortified wine and okay. lemonade oh that was like not... a shandy but a wine shandy
1: huh i was expecting it to be like a line of cannabis like that doesn't <laughs> sound like cannabis
0: doesn't it i'm, I'm not being
1: crazy uh, right? that would
0: be if it were opal kush instead of opal i hush. know <laughs> i know but
1: maybe, like, an edible could be Opal Hush. Yeah,
0: we'll start that next, after the podcast <laughs> yeah. is done. After
1: the podcast, we'll invest. <laughs> yeah, And exactly. the miniature theater, obviously. We need and to the miniature, miniature theater,
0: theater exactly. <laughs> and so when she's in London, she meets W.B. Yeats, and at first she thinks that he's super pompous, but then they eventually I thought that being... was the
1: funniest part. <laughs> yeah. Like, she is, like, she is reaming him out in her letter. In yeah. her, oh, my gosh. My so accent. In, came her out. <laughs> in her letters. In her letters. In her letters to her cousin or whatever, she was just like, this, he's a pop his ass. I can't believe blah, blah, blah. He would say this thing, da da da, And then they're like BFFs. Yeah.
0: And she immediately (laughs) joins Golden Dawn because he's part of it all. Not because he's part of it also, but that's probably has something to do with it because they become really connected with each other. Um, He's a mentor. She joins Golden Dawn in uh, 1901. So just for context. The writer weights or the writer weight deck was published in 1909. So this is eight years before that. It's funny because later though they talk about how she never progressed past the first level. Which (laughs) can I tell you what the first degree level of Golden Dawn is called? Okay, yes, tell me because I mention it in her
1: legacy, but tell us. Okay,
0: I just think no, no, no. I don't mention like the title. I just mention her kind of like she wasn't that into it. Yeah, but I guess she wasn't that into it because she never really progressed. But She never progressed beyond the first degree zealotor. Oh,
1: yeah. (laughs) It's some, like, Scientology shit, like...
0: I know, it sounds so (laughs) Scientology-ish, seriously. But anyway, so she works with Yates on other stuff, a lot of other illustrations. She did meet Arthur Waite, or sorry, yeah, Arthur Waite through the organization, But Yates is quoted as saying that Pixie Smith alone seems to understand what he wants Mm -hmm. and like what he's looking for from an art perspective. The next section is the problem with publishers section, which I'm not going to go into because it's like, you know, normal business problems. But the cool part about it is that they quote her so frequently that you really hear her voice. Yes, yes. Like she calls them pigs. Many times. Yeah, she calls them pigs. She's like, they underline sections that she underlined. So it's just like very vehement. And it's super fun to be able to hear her voice because we're so used to seeing her art, but you don't like hear her as much in the art. And in this whole section, it's like all correspondence about how pissed off she is at her publishers. So that's a super fun section. <laughs> like, like you
1: know, when you get to know the real personality of someone when they're angry. Like, that's yeah, like the best part. <laughs>
0: like, she's not holding back. She's like full blown livid. It's just hilarious. So, because of all these problems with publishers, then the book goes into how she kind of created her own little zine, basically. Like, originally it was monthly, then it became quarterly and then it became annually eventually she lost interest when she was like 26 which made me laugh because i'm like <laughs> yep. yep that's kind of when you start being like okay never mind <laughs> this take too much
1: energy out of me but like a ton of people yeah. were involved with her zine too like yates wrote a tons ton of, poems of for people. Her. Like stuff not for her, but like for the magazine stuff. So Yeah. You know, it wasn't like she was doing it by herself and like writing all her own no, stuff.
0: No, and she would she would publish like women authors who weren't getting a lot of room and other sort of like similar publications. And she focused a lot on folktales, novels, fairy tales. And in the book, in the artwork section, there are reproductions of some of those covers. And interiors and poems that she wrote and stuff, and it is really, yeah. really stuff. Like I think I feel like, I feel like very, you can go through that
1: section and just like take a long day and just read, read, read all that was in yeah, there. Yeah, totally. It's like books within books. So book.
0: that's I, I found that super effective because it kind of also brings up all of the sort of feminist like trying to increase access that women had to publishing their works mm-hmm. stuff. So that was really cool. I really liked that section. Um and then they go into her synesthesia which I, I love
1: that. Love. That was so cool. So
0: synesthesia is kind of this like neuro pathway thing where people can like smell colors or music can invoke tastes or all of those sorts of things. Um and she had that. And so paired with her being a pretty good artist, or pretty good, a really good artist, she had a lot of success at like listening to a piece of music and painting these incredibly detailed scenes that the music evoked. So her synesthesia is different from other people's synesthesia because instead of it just being colors, she would have scenes, Mm -hmm. you know, come to her. If she didn't like the music, she would just be sitting there painting and listening. If she didn't like the music it would be either a totally unfinished piece of art or just like, you know, she wouldn't even stop. Yeah. So it wasn't like she could do it for everything. She only really did it for stuff that she really liked. So yeah, my favorite image in the entire book is in the synesthesia. Synesthesia? Jesus Christ. Synesthesia. Synesthesia. <laughs> my favorite my favorite image in the whole book is in the synesthesia section. It's this woman who's wearing like all white. Oh, my favorite white too. Dress <laughs> sitting on, yeah, on this like roiling sea. It's so beautiful. The stars are beautiful. It's just really gorgeous. And that's one of the synesthesia yeah. pieces. And I'll post a picture about this or of this on Instagram. It's so pretty. And also for those of you who haven't noticed every single episode, we post to our Instagram stories our favorite images from the deck and then we save them as a highlight. So if you're listening to a past episode or whatever, or listening to this one and you're like, what are they talking about? They don't post any of this on Instagram. It's all saved to story highlights. Yes. Yes. But then she was saying that somebody was asking her about like kind of the process for it. And she was saying how she didn't really enjoy the music of, of Wagner. It didn't ever elicit any positive reaction to Good her. Good girl. And when they asked like, Good girl. like what she heard or what she felt, she would say, she said, my scalp tingles and my hair pricks. I feel so full of rage that I want to crack the heads of the people together like nuts when it's played in a room. Thick curtains of brown spider's webs appear, sticky and evil-smelling. Oh, my god! So she, like, it's not like all music makes her feel joyful. Yeah. It was like some did. Yes, only some. <laughs> and she really fucking hated other stuff. But in 1907, she exhibited 72 of those synesthesia paintings in New York. And this is really meaningful because she was one of only seven or six women who had an exhibit featured at this gallery between 1805 and 1817 and Georgia O'Keeffe making her second appearance. She was one of the other women whose stuff was shown. I think that is brilliant. Like you just don't realize yeah. like how, like reading this book you, it was a,
1: such a small world. Like there was such a small pocket it's of people small... that influence
0: sort of like, yeah. Artist community of that era. Like people were going back and forth from London to New York it seems like constantly. constantly. yeah. So that's it, wild, like blo- but... It blew
1: my mind just like just reading names after names. I mean, we have a like Bram Stoker comes in the picture. Yeah. I'm like,
0: what? Yeah. He's coming up now. Oh, hey, well, actually, oh. no. First comes Mark Twain. So the next section is about her public performances of Anansi. She did it really all over the place. She would always start all of her stories with and a long before time before Queen Victoria came to ra- reign over us. Like, so it was <laughs> kind of like that's also subversive yeah. in some ways. Um, She performed for Mark Twain. She also, during the same time period, was working on the tarot cards. Woohoo! Which then the book transitions to the tarot card stuff. She finished um, the 78 cards in November of 1909. And it was published in December, which is like an incredible turnaround time. Considering we think of that era as being like very slow, so much yeah. slower. Like that's that would be incredible for a Kickstarter campaign. Exactly, to have a one month turnaround. Yeah, we have six months <laughs>
1: on most of our Kickstarters. Come on, people, we can work faster. It's modern. <laughs>
0: 20, 21st century or because in that period they were just like publishing them in people's basements it was fast they had the golden dawn probably had their own stuff. publishing
1: in the basement next to, the, yeah, to exactly. osiris or
0: whatever his name is yeah but so it was commissioned by Wait to go along with his book the key to tarot being fragments of a secret tradition under the veil of divination the backs are those traditional i know just like such a long (laughs) time. The backs are those traditional white and blue repeating roses. So you can still see that on a lot of decks now. And uh, Arthur Waite, kind of a dick. Yeah. But pretentious. He's quoted in a lot of sections of this. I mean, she said this was a lot of work for not a lot of money. That's like her most famous quote about it. But he thought that she was abnormally talented, like a psychic, this incredible artist, but also is quoted as saying that he had to spoon feed her uh, all of the images like, uh, because like she couldn't handle it, whatever. She kept letting her own interpretations into it. And it's like, uh, yeah, dude, she was the artist. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you can't, you, you can't do this, Arthur. You're just writing a fake
1: book. That's all you're doing. <laughs> That's all you did was write a fake book about some fake history. Don't make
0: people turn off the podcast. <laughs> And so, like, yeah, so a lot of the major arcana stuff, any difference between that and earlier, like, versions are things that he spoon-fed her, but it's generally assumed that she had... Yeah, I'm using air quotes for that. It's so sad that our audio medium can't pick up, like, my heavily implied I'm about to do, quote.
1: like, the jerk-off symbol, like, here. Like.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the only problem with podcasts is that you can't tell when people are using air quotes and you can't tell when people are rolling their eyes and making jerk-off hands. Yeah. Uh. Sorry. Anyway, so, but it seems like she had way more freedom over the minor arcana. Yes, yes. Um, and because there's, like, way less in his book about each of them. And also, it's cool because there was the other, the Solo Busca, which is, like, the only other earlier deck with illustrated minor arcana, had been on display at the British Museum, like, a couple of years before in, like, 1907. So she probably saw that and you know there's some inspiration from that but she wasn't being kind of like forced in any one direction for it okay sorry i'm just going to go through the next couple chapters pretty quickly she was involved with suffrage uh, she did a couple of really easily identified post posters but most posters from that era weren't signed oh. because of a variety of reasons one of them being that she they were get all pro- in protest yeah. <laughs> and also because it was supposed to symbolize the collective action oh. so like so the no one was higher printed. than the other Person exactly okay. exactly so there, no one could say like oh I have a poster that was done by mm-hmm. Pamela oh, Smith okay. and other you know so it was just kind of supposed to be more collective. She did three images for Bram Stroke Bram Stoker's *Layer of the White Worm*, which was a follow up to *Dracula*. Um, the art was super praised, but it never was as popular. One of those is
1: one of my favorite pictures: the woman that's in white going down the stairs. Like her facial oh, expression yeah. is just so intricate and just perfect. I
0: love that. One. One. Yeah, that's a really good one. And then this is when I started really skimming because there's like an entire retelling of Bluebeard. I know. In segment, I know. Which I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like, I don't know if that was totally necessary to retell Bluebeard, especially because it's one of the most well known mm-hmm. stories. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess there are probably people who don't know, but if you're unfamiliar, the Cribs Note version is this woman marries this guy. He has a locked room that he says, like, you can't, you know, go in here. She goes in and sees previous people have been killed there and he she's like being forced in there by her husband and she kind of keeps putting him off and putting him off and putting him off and her brothers end up coming and killing him. And so she inherits all the money and the idea is like, you know, she was really wily and got out of the shitty situation. Yeah, but it's like much longer than that. It's, it's like much entire much longer. Retelling. Holly
1: did a nice 30 second recap for you. all. Yeah,
0: Exactly. <laughs> And then she also did the costumes for a whole bunch of plays in, like, 1814. Um, oh, and also 1814, it must have been, like, something must have happened that year because she gave away her guest book that all of her friends had been drawing in and signing oh. for 13 years. <gasps> Just gave oh it gosh. away. And she's quoted and say, as saying that she did it because she didn't care for people anymore. <laughs> something must have happened. What kind of drama
1: would have happened for her to give away like 13 years worth of like friendships or like memories like that. The
0: really incredible thing is that much of it is reproduced in this book. So you can Mm -hmm. see they both have like a spreadsheet list of who all signed it and kind of what their profession was, if they're a notable person. And then also the images from it. And people were like drawing beautiful things in her guest book. And at 36, she just was like, kind of over it and I think that that's kind of a turning point for her because she also converted to Catholicism like right before mm-hmm. or right after the tarot deck was completed in 1911 she converted to Catholicism it seems like she sort of left a lot of her social interactions with people and so she gave that away and then during World War One, she was making art for Polish Victims Relief Fund she did a Stations of the Cross A postcard set. She kept telling Anansi stories, including at a fundraiser in 1917. And she still participated in astrology events, but it seems like she was maybe a little bit out of where she'd been as a young woman, where she was like Mm -hmm. this super glamorous, like invited to all the parties, friends with all these famous people sort of thing. She moved to Cornwall in 1919 because she inherited some money from an uncle she leased this big house called Park Garland. I'm sure that this has a French pronunciation, but I'm going to say it in the, in the American <laughs> style of Parc Garland.
1: <laughs> Park, Park Garland. Parc Garland. <laughs> <Park>
0: Garland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a big house with two buildings that had been used as school, as a school, oh. and also a little chapel. And so she rented out space in the summers as her income to, like, uh, Catholic priests on vacation, basically. Oh, and so this, she lived there for 20 years. There's not a ton of information except for that. She was continuing to try to sell illustrations to publishers Mm -hmm. and she put on nativity plays, but she was also writing these letters to her friends, basically being like, like, please get somebody to buy my stuff. Like I have no money. At all. I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's like a really scary, scary time. And that's kind of how she lived the rest of her life in 1939 after 20 years at that house, living with her friend Nora. And this is like where it doesn't delve into this in the book, but some people think that that was sort of like a romantic relationship, but she lived because she also ended up living, leaving her entire estate to Nora. But she Uh. lived with Nora for those 20 years. And then she left Nora. She left the house with Nora and moved to Exeter. Uh, She continued painting. She became a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts like 10 years later, but she never really ever, I guess, inspired quite as much devotion and enthusiasm as she did when she was really young. She died in 1951 when she was 73. Her will, which had been written earlier that year, left all of her estate to Nora. But after selling everything uh, to cover debts, Nora ended up with nothing and the liquidation of all of Pamela Smith's belongings only covered about a quarter of her debts. Oh my gosh. So it's just such a frustrating thing to know that something that she did in her youth or I guess twenties was so iconic and important. And that by the end of her life, she had literally nothing and was like Mm -hmm. kind of begging people to hire her to do stuff. She was Catholic until she died, but it would have cost money for her to be taken and buried in the Catholic graveyard. So it's likely that she was buried at St. Michael's Cemetery in the Bude Anglican Parish Church, B-U-D-E, if you live in that area. Correct my pronunciation. Um, but it's impossible to know because all of their records were lost in a fire. That is her life.
1: That's her life.
0: It was. It's a wild life. She had so much success in the early part and then a lot of frustration and hardship in the later part. Yeah. But do you want to go through the artwork section and, like, talk about some of the stuff that we really love that they included? Yes.
1: Let me grab my book here. Uh,
0: <laughs> uh. <laughs> so, like I already said, my f- absolute favorite piece in the entire book is the um, sea they, creatures. I think it's called Sea Creatures. Watercolor. Yeah. 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 I love watermelon. that one. It's I kind of want so to cut cool. it
1: out and frame, like put it in a frame. I know. That's how, I like, always
0: think that about art books like this. I'm like, it's my book. I can cut it apart if I want to. But then I'm yes. since I'm a completionist. I'm like, oh, but then I'll be missing this other page. <laughs> exactly. And I know that you mentioned like
1: her taking Shakespeare and kind of turning it with like I'm wording it this way, but like a little of a feminist slant. Like yeah. And that so that's Hamlet that's one of the images right, I chose was Lady Macbeth. <laughs> Because I yeah. love the way that she reframed that from it being a total man thing to it having the woman having more power and stuff like that. What
0: page is the Macbeth thing? 26. On? Okay, 26. Esther Macbeth. Okay. So I just, uh, and yeah, she was like involved with too.
1: with Shakespeare a lot. I, f- I feel like she kind of tried to be subversive a little bit more with Shakespeare yeah. stuff. Like it was like, easy for her to be do that. So.
0: Yeah, totally. I really like that. Another one of my favorite I- favorite images is an illustration from the Golden Vanity, and I'm definitely gonna post a picture of this because, like, I think maybe the ones that it's also another ocean-based one. Yeah. Which okay. Which one is really it? Because I know of. the
1: ocean-based one too. What
0: page? It's one seventeen. That's my dude. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Holly. I love it because well actually one of the reasons that I found the whole thing really fun is because since we've already done Pixie's astonishing Lenormand. I know. There were definitely so areas fun. where I was like
1: oh, I, I do know. know they got that. Like you could totally see where he like got the anchor, like it's like that was that was that was something I was going to mention too, is like with the with the Lenormand being familiar with those images and then coming here, I'm like oh, the, he was like being honest. He didn't like make this shit yeah. up, you know?
0: Yeah. It's so fun to look through it all and just to feel like 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 you have kind of an understanding. Yeah.
1: And an, a, like a deeper appreciation for not only her artwork, but also the artwork that went into that deck and others that
0: yeah. do that sort
1: of similar thing. So yes. oh and
0: then also because one of the ones that i pointed out was the back cover from the golden vanity and the green bed which are the three fish that was one of my favorite cards from the astonishing oh Lemonade.
1: yeah and yeah those are all my, i chose three favorites because that it wouldn't be like hey a like i have
0: another one that i that's one of my favorites just because of a reason that i think you'll appreciate okay go look at page 51
1: 51 oh that's early in her career okay Fifty-one. Ooh. But the people kind of look like dicks, too. <laughs>
0: exactly. That's why I wanted you to look at it. It's part of a poem about how lonely she is or how lonely this person is. Yeah, it was written by Ernest Radford. And the image is like this really, really pretty I, I think it's a man wrapped up in fabric and then surrounding him in the sky is all of these couples kind of in embrace but the first time it,
1: <laughs> they really look like dicks
0: I definitely was like oh those are dicks Yes. Yeah. and
1: someone's lonely like okay dicks. it kind of makes sense okay <laughs> <laughs>
0: So we had to have one little immature level I mean, in that. There we but go. But people expect
1: that by now. I mean, this is
0: who we are. Yeah, exactly. You should not probably still be surprised by things like that after listening to so many episodes of this podcast. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I had one, two more that I just wanted to touch on briefly. Oh, yeah. So one of the things that I bookmarked was the section of her guest book. Oh, Because okay. it really is so cool. It's pages 152 to, like, 150 160 oh yeah 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 and it's just awesome like that is such a great idea if I had a salon or like if I had something where people were coming to participate in art with me all the time I would absolutely want them all to draw like you know I would totally have something every figures. week I
1: mean I'm a, like a definitely like an introvert but something like where people just come and chill that's my introvert style like yeah, just like, come, come and, sit and chill in my
0: house and chat with exactly. me exactly <laughs> Just bring something to
1: eat. And that's like my level of chill.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I really love, I think that going through the guest book is just so much fun because it's really neat to see who was visiting her and kind of what they were involved in. And then also see all the cute little doodles and stuff like that. And some of them are so intricate. Yeah. I love them. I mean, it's both, it's bittersweet because that happened. All of that stuff was happening when she was like glamorous and, you know, popular. And then she gave it away when she was starting to feel less recognized mm-hmm. so it makes me feel sad that she didn't like ma- wasn't able to feel like she maintained that yeah but the problem is that she doesn't there aren't any letters where she talks about that transition at all yeah
1: or either they were destroyed it, or something i don't know
0: yeah but i feel like they would have found them because they're it's so, so complete yeah. like she wrote for so years many letters yeah 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 so it must have been something that she just talked to people about rather than publishing yeah but anyway so it's really really beautiful that whole section is very long and gorgeous yes and that leads us to the third section which was influences and expression in the rider Waite tarot deck and this is funny because it starts with like the most basic explanation of tarot ever like, oh. there are two types of cards major arcanas and minor arcanas and the minor arcanas are blah blah blah, blah. like Very, very basic intro, which only made me laugh because I was like, probably the people who are picking up this book already read tarot. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I would think so. You'd have to assume that they did, because why else would you spend $40 on a book about... And you've already talked about tarot tarot pretty
1: much already, so...
0: Yeah, exactly. They give the basic structure. They speculate more about the Arthur Waite not giving as much thought to the minors. They mention the Solobuska Tarot, which in 1907 was the only previous deck that had an illustrated minor arcana. And she joined the Golden Dawn right after her first synesthesia painting. So I think that that must have been a period where she was having a lot of, like, spiritual growth. Yeah. Arthur Waite thought that she would be able to help him rectify the tarot, which I think is, like, uh, like, based on other things he said, of course he thought that he was fixing it. But not much is known about her use of symbolism in the cards because he took so much credit for, like, everything she did. Yeah. So it's generally assumed that she aligned with him pretty closely. She did have experience with Tarot before working with him on this deck. That's one of the reasons that he really wanted her help. So it's not like she was going into it completely without any knowledge at all. But she didn't write about sort of like her process for it. And then it this was actually like such a good section. It talked about like her different influences artistically. Oh. So Swedenborg, Swedenborgianism, which is a offshoot of Catholicism. Oh. Where it was the Swedish scientist turned mystic named Swedenborg. Oh. And he, I think it was based in America, but her grandparents were following him. Right, yeah. Him. Yeah,
1: because it goes in her family like lots of divination and mystical mysticism. Exactly.
0: Stuff. Yeah. Exactly. So there was a lot of focus on mediumship in that oh. um, and religious iconography. Yeah. And so that's kind of where that comes from. An additional influence was the arts and crafts movement which was a cultural... I think of, like, Hobby
1: Lobby, like, campaigning (laughs) the arts and crafts (laughs) movement. No, I know. Seriously.
0: (laughs) No. It was the exact opposite of Hobby Lobby campaigning. (laughs) It was radical. It was focused on increasing access to goods... For people of all like social classes, there was social justice elements and also spiritualism. Oh, interesting. Um, which is really awesome. And then also, she had theatrical influences that related shock or ugliness to beauty. Oh. Um, that was part of the theatrical okay. side of things. And then the Pratt Institute was known for its feminist thought and reformist. Uh, positions and so the Swedenborgianism brought in the religious iconography the Pratt stuff brought in the feminist stuff the arts and crafts movement brought through some social justice stuff and they have a lot of examples of ways that that was used and like I said at the beginning they also have like side-by-side pictures of her friends and the cards that they are seen as being depicted on. But this is also a section where they talk about her friends and the women that she surrounded herself with and kind of how all of that is incorporated into the tarot as well. Does
1: Nora have a card? Do they think Nora? is... It doesn't mention okay. her specifically. Okay, I was just checking because since she was BFF, I didn't I know, know. she made it. I
0: think that Nora might have been come later in her
1: life later. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. because
0: this was since this was painted in like 1907 to 1909, yeah. and the first mention of Nora in the biographical stuff was 1919. Okay, okay. I feel like that there might have been a little bit of a gap. Gap. There. Okay, okay. But yeah, so that is the end of my section. Yes, and I get to go over
1: her legacy.
0: Yeah. So
1: there, because there are three kind of three or four different authors and like um, autobiographers in this book, some of the information will be repeated, but it's like from a different perspective and maybe have different like. Like viewpoint, which is the same thing as perspective. Why did I do that?
0: (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) Because the first two sections are by those researchers who still have been researching Pamela Coleman Smith for a while. But this last section that you're about to do is from Mary Kay Greer, who I think has like a more spiritual connection. Yeah. And like she, and
1: she's, if you just even go in like the old eclectic forum, she's been doing this for years and studying about Pamela and the spiritual side of things. So so if you hear double information, it's fine. You need to know it better. Okay. We're going to drill this into your brain. (laughs) We're going to have a test on this, and if you pass the test, we will give you a gold star. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, of course, actually last year commemorated Pixie's 140th birthday, so we just passed her 141st birthday as of, like, last week. So her legacy (laughs) is much broader stroke than even I knew, because... As of course, like we know with Divination, we've all kind of become students of Pixie and her artwork when we study with her deck. And in a way, we carry her methods of storytelling traditions and we, as we interpret the cards for others. And as yeah. Holly said, the Major Arcana was heavily influenced by Arthur Waite because they are seen as – he thinks that they're highly symbolic and they're very si- stiff in nature. Yeah. But in contrast, of course, the Minor Arcana was more of Pixie's deck where she had that freedom and therefore she could express the movement and the more animated storyboard as we kind of see with like miniature theater. I think that's kind of like it became her miniature theater yeah. on paper.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I could totally I see that. I think you
1: I just like freeballed that. So well, good job. <laughs>
0: You're very compelling, my answer. <laughs> um so
1: when asked why he chose Pixie, Waite stated she was at most oh wait a most imaginative and abnormally psychic artist who loved the ceremonies without understanding their symbolic import which i feel like that's just saying
0: what a I, I hated
1: that I, I i mean
0: it's a compliment but it's wrapped it's like up a in being, like compliment. she didn't
1: get it she doesn't she get, get it, she, likes she, this, she likes she likes going to the ceremonies but she doesn't get the depth of it like yeah because only
0: i do <laughs> exactly. and that's i have to be in charge of this <laughs> exactly sorry
1: dingy's playing with a toy if you hear like bouncingness and since as of this time that waits and she created the deck, Pixie had only been through two Golden Dawn initiations, she would have only seen two tarot cards. Which I thought was really interesting. That is
0: interesting and that's also different from the information that happens in other sections that say she only made I know, it- but so that's why I was like, uh, okay. Maybe the first degree is after the second initiation. Like first I don't like- I don't know if the
1: degrees are the same as initiations or what. Yeah. But interesting. Mary Craig Greer says that she was like a set, she only got had two initiations because in the Golden Dawn, seeing the cards and learning their meanings and how to read tarot was not allowed until the sixth initiation, when they entered into the inner order. <laughs> Such pretentious pricks, people! Like they are so pretentious. Like are you, you can you can only see one tarot card.
0: I think Here that I would go. love to join a cult at some point, but not this one. <laughs> <laughs> can we? Can we have like our, our
1: own cult? Yeah, there you go.
0: Why doesn't like, everyone send me your pitches for what cults you think I should go? Cult.
1: And we will consider them, <laughs> yeah, like exactly. legit resumes. And we will be like, Huh, I feel like this would be beneficial Strengths, for my life. Weaknesses <laughs> Areas for growth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And of course, as and of course, as we know, Pixie's deck became kind of the standard that most tarot decks are based on because of its adaptabil like adaptability and approachability. And I think because of the printing as well, because I think that's when kind of modern printing kind of got yeah, in the way. Yeah, totally.
0: And, so it was suddenly way more easily accessible. Exactly. It wasn't, like, hand-drawn.
1: Um, and we can also find that her legacy reaches into film and media and poetry. Just turning on a TV, and most tarot cards you will see are either de Marseille, like if it's, like, an old historical one, or more likely it's Pixie's Deck. Yeah, totally. Like, I don't think... I don't, I think uh, historical stuff I've only seen Tarot Mars. so I want a couple like, yeah, times. Yeah, I feel
0: like, right, yeah, Rider right Waite's way more popular.
1: And it was so popular in the TV drama Dark Shadows that was in the 1960s, it basically fueled the resurgence of tarot and the new wave of tarot decks. So like Aquarian Tarot, Morgan Greer, Mother Peace were all influenced by Dark Shadows no. using tarot.
0: I've never Isn't even heard of that show. <laughs> you haven't? No. You don't know dark, tarot, dark Shadow? No. It's
1: like vampires, like the original vampires and witches. Like Really? Old, like,
0: like. Yeah. Can we make Kylie and Anna talk about it on Witches Who Watch? Oh,
1: we should. They should watch Dark Shadows. Because it's like, it went on forever. Like, for. It was like, it's basically like a soap opera with vampires. Oh, it's
0: also a 2012 movie.
1: Yeah, don't ignore that. <laughs> Starring it has Johnny, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, Johnny Damp- Depp is canceled. <laughs> Johnny Depp is canceled. Just watch the original series. All
0: right, I'll try to find it for sure. Okay, yeah.
1: And surprisingly, this. The RWS deck is a favorite deck among poets where one writer started her career by writing poems based on tarot cards. Cute. She would get a pa- out a pack of tarot cards, turn one card over every day, and write a poem about it. I so love that. So I just that. thought that was like a really neat practice. Yeah, that's like, a really neat practice. practice. I mean, you could do that with like short stories. Yeah. You could do that with stuff. Anyway. And of course, Pixie's legacy is most impactful on we as tarot readers. Pixie made tarot approachable, accessible, and fun. And it's no longer in the ivory towers, but it's down here for all of mankind to enjoy and use. Her minor arcana, as the authors write, is an ambassador or envoy to the future—a tool for, fu- for future tale for the f- a tool for future telling. Easy enough for me to say, <laughs> while yet illustrating timeless echoes long ago of myths and legends, rather than of actual historical events. And the heart of tarot is art it's illustrations and the meanings that transcend the words i think that's why it's so easy for us to read it is because of those images
0: that also brings up such a good point because we both have a lot of tarot decks and sometimes like especially in some facebook groups some tarot facebook groups people will comment constantly like you know why does why do people feel the need to have so many don't they just feel connected enough to one but i think that both of us would say that All of our decks are different from an artistic perspective. Yeah. And that's why we like having so many because Mm -hmm. sometimes you want something that is more whimsical or sometimes you want something that's more harsh or whatever. There's like a million reasons, but each artist brings so much to the same archetypes. And that's why having many feels... Good to me and like yeah. useful to me. Yeah. And like
1: yesterday, Claire Goodchild posted like a picture of like her tarot collection. And I messaged her saying, like, haha, I'm going to like stalk your tarot decks to see what you have. And it's because i to me I love saying tarot decks because it's it's an expression of the person themselves. Yeah, exactly. Like if you look like if you look at my tarot decks like it, there's variety, there's darkness, there's light, there's fun, there's you know, but to me that's my own personal expression of who I am right. inside. And I feel like that's really cool. Yeah. Like like it's not only archetypal of like these things that transcend ages. It's also like identifying me as a person. Yeah, Totally.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like what are you drawn to? And you can even see that with some of the ways that we like which decks one of us has and the other one doesn't or whatever. Yeah. Like that nuance also shows something about us. Like something I'm not drawn to this for whatever reason. Yeah. Which is totally fine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's so exciting. And there's like more and more stuff being created all the time. And that wouldn't be happening if it was still just like, you know, all like in our whole gatekeeping episode where you have to like be given it, it has to be mm-hmm. hand painted, like you only get good results from ones you made. Like I've yeah. actually heard those yes. arguments. And now it's like, if you like an artist and they create a tarot deck, you can have some of that art in your house. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the Rider-Waite-Smith decks are now coming with additional cards of other artwork. Of her of artwork, Yeah. And so a lot of us are seeing those additional pieces of art without even really realizing that that's what's happening. Like, one of them I thought was just an extra lover's card. Like yes, a the one with the doves. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But that's like yeah. an actual piece of art from a totally separate thing.
1: Yeah. And I feel like the, the artwork kind of like is symbolic of this energy. That's It's not like a stagnant thing. It's something that's living and something that's vibrant. Yeah.
0: And that's why more modern decks have more diversity. Yeah. Or, You know, like, there's less of a focus on, you know, swords being bad or whatever. Like, because as our mentalities change about, like, what's the norm and stuff, people can adjust that and make things more inclusive or whatever. Right. Right. Or specific, even. And Mary Greer, like, tells us that in
1: an article from 1908, Pamela actually explains to people how to read tarot. And so I'm going to quote Pamela oh, yeah. like her method. Uh, why did I call her Pam? Pam
0: oh because gosh. of me, but it I is. think that it's thank you, it's Holly. Cute. Pammy, <laughs> her little Pammy, <laughs> little
1: Pammy Pam. Um, so, so she says. Note the dress, the type of face. See if you can trace the character in the face. Note the pose, and first watch the simple forms of joy, fear, sorrow. Look at the position taken by the whole body, and after you found how to tell a simple story put in more detail learn from everything see everything and above all feel everything find eyes within look for the door into the unknown country i was just like that is so beautiful because she's like it's like what that's exactly what we do as tarot readers you know we develop the story for the people that we read for for ourselves and we just um, express that. Yeah, totally. That's really beautiful.
0: Ah, Pixie! I know.
1: Yeah, that's that's Is that kind it? of her okay. legacy. Yeah, I mean, her, we have a non-terror legacy, but I think we cover that pretty well. So. Yeah. I'm, so
0: are you glad you bought this book?
1: Yes! <laughs> I, I, because I, I will have plenty of material, and it's a good, very, like, especially because of what we do. It's a nice reference volume, because since I can't get an ebook form, I like having it. Yeah. Just as a good like reference of the artwork, and I I will definitely go back through and read all the stories like Bluebeard and the the golden, yeah, and the, the art gold section. There's art. so yeah. much text. There's so much
0: handwriting. I know. I think it's just so cool. Like you
1: could literally spend weeks just kind of combing through everything with. Yeah. Th- so yeah. I and really also, you it. can
0: flip through it at any point and find something cool that you like didn't spend enough time on before. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm really glad that I bought it like I kind of joked about when we were talking about the fact that we were going to do this book to begin with. I was like it took me a really long time to spring for it. For some I know. Reason. I know. I was like I don't know if I want to do that but I'm so glad that I did and I've been it's been like kind of floating around my house for several months and I just kind oh. of look through it every once in a while but it's really really nice to feel that especially because people like kind of I think that the more that there are r- other really cool decks out there, the more people are, like, a little bit less impressed with RWS. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, because, like, the diversity
0: is not there. Yeah. The... It's just kind of, like, boring Yeah, or old-fashioned or whatever. But I just, I don't know. For I some think reason, this helps bring it back alive. It kind of, like, yeah. renews Think about the it, person who yeah. created it rather than just, like, you know, Arthur's, Arthur Waite right
1: well because like in her book there are illustrations of people of color but they aren't in the deck and maybe that yeah. was something controlled by him like we yeah, we exactly. don't know
0: it's really it's just really awesome it's really cool to be able to like you know remember that a real human woman who like had a lot of complicated life and complex feelings and emotions and stuff like that like may- spent so much time working on this and also spent so much time just trying to be artistic in the world yeah and, you know and like fighting easy.
1: for what she believed in like yeah tooth and nail it was yeah. i think it's inspirational so
0: yeah. yeah so i'm really glad that i have it and i'm glad that we got to talk about it i know that was fun so next week, we're going to talk about the Animal Spirit Oracle from Ooh. The Wild Unknown. Yay. I'm excited. Yeah. And we so have different editions, but I think it's mostly the I same. I think it's mostly the same. I feel. I think yours has more metallic because the movie yeah. has more Mine's metallic. Mine's more fancy. Yeah. The indie one doesn't have as much metallic, but, <laughs> you know.
1: I'm excited so to see fancy. what it looks like. It is fun. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, that's it. Oh, I guess I'm the one who does the outro. Yeah, I, I was fine. like,
1: well, I'm not the one who Polly, starts, but I mean, I degenerate. can <laughs> so <Sorry>. start.
0: <laughs> All right. That's our show. <laughs> I figured out. Good uh, job. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you'd like us, please tell some friends about us um, or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts.
1: If you have a tarot question or a life question that we help through tarot, email us at wildlytaylorpodcasts at gmail.com or message us on our Instagram at podcast.
0: You can also follow us on Instagram for pictures of the decks or books we're talking about or join our Facebook community by searching Wildly Tarot Podcast on Facebook.
1: Also, feel free to follow each of us on Instagram. I am at Celestial Esther and Holly is at Holly Enchanted.
0: Go forth and Pamela Coleman Smith wildly. (laughs) Just be your best self. Yes. (laughs)